So I'm going to uh, today speak about the first of the Vipalasa. We started with the fourth Vipalasa because it's about uh, mainly, you know, uh, traditionally about the body. And so it's in the first establishment of mindfulness, the first Satipatthana. That's why we started with that one. And now I'm continuing and speak about what's on the list is actually the first um, Vipalasa, which is seeing that which is impermanent as permanent. And you're not one of the real big ways how that is coming, you know, to the forefront these days is along the uh, climate crisis where we, you know, have been living for centuries on this planet, you know, especially since, uh, you know, the Western societies have made a lot of progress in uh, science and technology and getting completely, you know, stuck in a certain worldview, you know, looking at the planet as a, as a big machine, you know, like a truck, basically, which now is breaking down and trying to fix it in from the same worldview, trying to fix it. And it's not, it's not really bearing, you know, any tangible good results, but we are starting to see, you know, that the way of looking in itself needs to be fixed if anything needs to be fixed it the, the way how we are looking at our experience is where everything starts so we need to go back to the root of the issue and the four vipalasa are one way how the root of the issue can be laid out and i think you know the the vipalasa which is the easiest to relate to is according to my experience that first one on impermanence. Because it's quite easy, you know, to observe impermanence when we look at our thoughts, when we look at the process of breathing, look at feeling tones. Well, it's it's pretty easy to take that as an object for meditation. And and then, you know, from, from that concept of, you know, experiencing impermanence directly in, in the practice, it's pretty easy to reflect on that which is impermanent cannot be relied upon. It can't be nailed down. It can't be owned. I think that makes quite a lot of sense after we have looked at, at impermanence. And then, you know, that which can't be owned, which can't be controlled, doesn't have an unchanging core to it. And that's like one way how we can uh, express what the concept of anatta wants to communicate and sometimes also called emptiness. So, you know, those three, the first three of the Vipalasa, they are intimately interwoven with each other. And looking at impermanence is the perfect entry gate because it's, it's easy to 
see it. But then to really integrate that seeing into our being, that requires a lot of practice. So that that seeing really changes the way we think. You know, the way we communicate, the way we project. That's what would really be the result, you know, which is liberating. And... um, You know, the basic meaning of the, of the word vipalasa is, or the basic meaning of, of what confusion is, or delusion or ignorance, which is the sum total of the vipalasa, is to believe that something is in a way that in fact it is not. And therefore, you know, meditation is, is much more about letting go. It's not about accumulating new knowledge. It's not about, you know, taking up more luggage, but it's about putting it down, you know, putting it down, the conditioning, putting it down through insight. And, you know, not a forceful kind of putting it down, but the the result of insight is letting go. It's a natural progression. And I'll speak about that a little bit later. But first, I just want to come back, you know, to the, the root of the word vipalasa, which is consists of three parts. And the original word is vipariasa, which means turned upside down. So, you know, the things we see, things, and then we turn them upside down through the conditioning of the mind and see something which isn't really there. For example, that which is impermanent, seeing it as per- as permanent. That's, you know, turning it upside down and seeing it in a way which it is not. And then acting from that deluded seeing, of course, you know, there's a lot of suffering coming from that. And there's also a different uh, translations for the word vipalasa. One is distortions. Another one is inversions that comes back to the upside down and hallucinations is also one. But there's many different words, you know, how we can come closer to that, what the mind is just automatically doing because of the deep, deep conditioning, which is so unconscious. And, uh, you know, through having this little list, we can, you know, have a little map from which we can check, you know, and can maybe slowly see more and more clearly what the mind is doing. And through that seeing clearly, uh, it starts to open up. And when the time is right, even drop away some of this. And... uh I brought a sentence here, you know, sometimes suttas are ending with, with a certain sentence, which also speaks to the vipalasa, and I wanted to share that with you. And uh, just going to quote, the Dhamma has been made clear in many ways by Master Gautama, that's the, the Buddha, as though he were turning upright what had been turned upside down, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost 
or holding up a lamp in the dark to those with eyesight to see forms. As though he were turning upright what had been turned upside down, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark to those with eyesight to see. So I think that's a very beautiful quote. And uh, so the point is, you know, to break slowly but surely, break down those perceived limitations, which are the result of conditioning. And how is that done? It's, it's done through attending, you know, to our experience without judging it. And attending to it in, in terms of the Buddha's teaching in the four establishments of mindfulness or the four satipatthana. And I just uh, want to go shortly over that. And I'm sure many of you have heard about this teaching. It's the classic template for meditation. You know, the first one being the contemplation of the body. So the somatic experience. And the second one being the contemplation of feeling tones, our affective experience. The third one, contemplation of the mind or the cognitive experience. And the fourth one is contemplation of dharmas or mind objects. And that relates all of the above to conditionality. You know how all of those different establishments of mindfulness are conditioning each other and then we are ending up in a kind of a tangle and uh, through the practice you know we are starting to make inroads into this tangle and for that you know we have different um, teachings and the four vipalasa is one teaching how we can you know, draw closer to the tangle without get, getting completely lost in it. By having those different ways of of looking at our experience and uh, and then slowly but surely things start to open up and there's a bit bit more space around the experience and through that space, you know, there's more capacity for awareness, for staying conscious with the experience. And through that seeing, clear seeing, things start to disentangle. And then they start to open up and then sometimes they just drop. And, uh, you know, and looking at impermanence is particularly handy because it's all around us all the time. And there are so many opportunities to see impermanence in action and you know we don't need to do anything special we just add attention you know paying attention is not changing anything willfully but just adding something to what's already happening and that's basically awareness mindfulness interest in the experience and uh in our internal experience, but also we can see it externally. 
and uh, you know the classic uh, progression of insight in terms of uh, observing impermanence is is paying attention to impermanence in our breathing process, for example, or paying attention in terms of you know looking at at the life of a human being you know it, a human being is born gets old gets sick dies corpse goes back into the ground and is integrated into the soil and then food other beings grow out of that soil again and then they age and they get sick and they die and they go back in and seeing seeing that process. So there's many ways, you know, how it can be observed in very minuscule through the breathing or in like very big ways, you know, whole planets, you know, stars get born and then they get old and then they explode and they go back into the universe and become stardust and then new stars form. So the impermanence, we can observe it in so many ways. But if we do not pay attention in this way, what is the result of it is uh, a certain washing away of grasping and clinging. That's what's happened. If we really pay attention and let that sink in, the mind and the heart responds with you know, letting a bit, letting go of that gripping and grasping because it starts to become, make sense, you know, that that which is impermanent, which is constantly changing, can't be controlled. And we can see it these days, you know, with the whole poly crisis and all of the different issues, you know, which are becoming more and more seen by mainstream society you know we can't really control planet earth to keep it giving to us what we want we have to adjust things are changing you know because we are too many people now and then in the time of the buddha there was maybe a few million people on the planet in iron age india now it's eight over eight billion. So what was possible, you know, certain lifestyles were possible even fifty years ago. Now it's it's no longer possible, and we need to see that this is also impermanent. Whole worldviews, you know, need to also, you know, have an end, and they need to. We need to. Um, gracefully let them die and you know give them hospicing them you know in a in a in a compassionate way not kind of just turning away or you know holding on and not wanting something to die this is the two extremes but compassionately allowing them to fall apart and becoming the soil for something new to emerge 
And I think this is why this this uh, contemplation of impermanence is is just so freeing, you know, on small levels and on very vast levels. So you know, paying attention to impermanence leads to in the classic um, teaching, it's called dispassion, viraga. And viraga comes from the word ranch, which means coloring, tying, you know, tying a piece of material. And that coloring is washed out, you know, through the paying attention to impermanence, the coloring is washed away the rose-colored glasses, you know, is is just washed away like a stain in a in a cloth. If you wash it only one time, it's just gonna be there still. If you wash it 10, 20 times, it's just gonna get lighter and lighter. And that's that's the um, second um stage of the progression of insight. So first is observing impermanence and then this passion, viraga. And then a mind, you know, which is which has less passion, less grasping, has more capacity to see clearly. And then a such a mind, you know, which is not so caught up in desiring and wanting, which is not so small, you know, it's not like a fist, but a mind which is open can see also and can allow the ending of things. And that would be the third stage of the progression of insight, allowing cessation. And knowing, you know, that everything which has a beginning has an end. And there's nothing wrong about that. How could it be otherwise, you know? And then... You know, we can suddenly see the beauty of that process as well. And that is in the Pali language is called Niroda. And then, you know, there's there's a capacity to be with that which is sick, with that which is old, with that which dies in ourselves and in others. In the mind, you know, he's more inclined towards letting go because it sees it doesn't make any sense to grasp onto that which is ceasing and disappearing. And then the fourth stage in the progression of insight is, is letting go, letting be. But it's also at the same time a letting come because the new will come out of the old. And, you know, there's a beautiful example, like, you know, for example, standing on the bank of a river and looking at the river flowing. So that would be observing impermanence. And then going onto the bridge and looking, you know, looking at the river flowing away from the bridge, that would be... This passion setting in because we can really see 
it's all flowing away. And then turning, uh, turning to the other side of the bridge and seeing how the river disappears under the bridge. How it suddenly ends. That would be cessation. And then jumping into the river and letting go and just becoming part of that river, being that flow and no longer trying to have it otherwise. That would be those four stages of the progression of insight. And it all starts with looking at impermanence and allowing that to wash away the craving and then having capacity for allowing endings and then through that allowing of endings, losing the fear of letting go. Because endings are at, at the same time a new beginning. So, you know, that's a very short summary, you know, of the progression of insight and I think it's a, it's something to reflect upon regularly because it brings so much relief. I think, you know, for small and big issues in life. Because we can see, you know, that this is the way things truly are. And I love also that word, which uh, is often mentioned in the sutta. It's called nibida which is often translated as disenchantment, you know, waking up from the dream, basically. Disenchantment. And if you literally translate the word nibida, it means not finding. Because originally, you know, we think there is all of those different phenomena and they all have a separate existence. But through looking at phenomena in this way, as I've just been speaking, we'll find out, no, they are not really separate. They are actually constantly changing and it's very different than what meets the eye. I mean, the, the physical eye. And we need to make, you know, a special effort by adding more mindfulness, showing more interest and looking more deeply. And then we can see, no, it's, it's actually quite different than how it looks on the surface. And also, you know, our language, we are speaking mainly nouns and they also hiding, hiding that, you know, the impermanence. And, you know, when we are small, when we learn to speak, the, the first words we learn are other nouns. So that's, you know, how we are conditioned. So that is so deeply ingrained in our unconscious. We need to really make a special effort, really, to start to peel that away and look underneath the surface. So... You know, my first teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, he, I found it very beautiful. He always said, you know, the letting go, he always said, throw it all back to nature. Because nature is the rightful owner of all of this, you know, of the of our bodies, of everything, of all 
everything we'd ever own, any objects, they all come from nature. You know, they are secreted out of the planet, just like our bodies. And I think that's a way of thinking, you know, which we have to make a, an effort to think that way because it goes so against the grain. And I think it's it's a very timely effort to make, you know, these days where we become more and more aware about the limitations of the biosphere. And I think in the UK, you are very lucky to have the Extinction Rebellion going really, really intense in your country. I think there's many countries who, who would wish, you know, to have more wake-up calls in the way that they really enter the mainstream because it goes so much against the conditioning. And, uh, you know, allowing endings of small things and big things. And, you know, having the strength to be in that uncertainty and in the darkness of when things end. When somebody dies, when we get diagnosed with an illness, when we lose something we love, to be able to be in that transition phase. And uh, Ajahn Chah, you know, who is the founder of the lineage where Laura and I trained for a long time, he spoke about earthworm practice, you know, being like an earthworm, not knowing, you know, what's in front of him or her, and not knowing where her she is going, but still being fully there and taking it in. I think that's having the humility and having the humor at the same time to be with what is. And also, you know, noticing the fact that the word humor and Humility and humus, you know, the soil, they all start with the same three letters and the word human as well. So I find it very interesting, you know, because I think to have that humility, you know, to look at the changingness of everything and then, you know, take an interest in that is, is so important for us, especially now, as there are so many things, you know, starting to fall away, things we have been taking for granted. So, you know, practicing in that way is a, is a great protection for our own hearts and minds. And then we can also be of benefit to others if we find a grounding in the midst of all of those changes and the ground in the midst of all of those changes is the awareness, which allows us to recognize that everything is impermanent. And there's no exceptions. And without that impermanence, you know, there would be no possibility for growth either. So we can use whatever is happening, you know, as a food for our practice and 
conserve energy, you know, but not throwing it out by trying to make things permanent, which are impermanent. And focusing the energy by observing that which is happening and allowing ourselves to be taught. And at the same time, you know, relying on the fact that we are not alone in this and we are doing this together. And, you know, any one of us, you know, who has a benefit from this practice is also benefiting the whole. And uh, you know, like to end with another lovely example, I think, you know, when you look at the trees in the fall, when they're getting ready for the winter, when they're getting ready for hard times, they, you know, they let the leaves go. And they're conserving energy for the winter. And at the same time, you know, the leaves which are going, they're falling on the ground and they're rotting into the ground and they become nourishment for the tree. And uh, and it's only uh, certain special trees which don't do that and or dead trees, you know. Sometimes you see trees where the leaves are still on in the in the winter because they are dead. They they no longer could do that. So, uh, you know, looking at impermanence in that way of like shedding that which is no longer useful and using it as a compost for whatever new wants to be born. I think that's a, a way which makes me feel more resourced, you know, in, in, in really allowing those difficult times to be there as long as they need to be there. And and then that is changing again and not interfering so much into the, into the process. Not so much um, judging everything according to comfortable and uncomfortable, but having a much bigger outlook. And doing it, you know, doing it together with others. And uh, taking an interest in what wants to come through, what wants to emerge when something which is no longer appropriate starts to disintegrate. And... uh, you know, now like to guide us in a, in a meditation to make it a little bit more uh, tangible, you know, what I was speaking about. So find a posture you can sustain for about 30 minutes or so. And... Um, Becoming aware of your body, sitting and uh, breathing and allow your breath to take you into the body. And feeling again the weight 
the gravity, you know, which keeps us connected to the planet. You know, we've come out of the planet. And this is a constant process of arising and ceasing, you know, like the waves on the top of the water. All of those bodies, you know, coming out and going back in and the trees and other animals and an incredible process. And where it seems now, you know, that we come into a time where the recognition of the fact, you know, that we are not separate from the planet will become a necessary understanding for our survival as a species, really. We are very young species, you know, compared with all other species on the planet, we are the youngest. And that's something we need to really consider. We haven't seen enough yet. Our species is about 200,000 years old only, which is not much, you know, compared with other mammalian species, they, they become about 2.7 million years old here. And we are just 200,000 years old. We are really, you know, we are kind of toddlers in comparison to other species who have been here so much longer than us. Like the turtles, 250 million years. still, you know, all of the information of the evolutionary deep time is laying dormant in our bodies. Because these bodies are made from the same elements as everything else on the planet and the planet itself. Earth element, water element, fire element, wind element. 
base element. And we are in constant exchange with the biosphere by eating earth element, drinking water element, temperature, fire element. Breathing, wind element, the body is in space and also is through and through space. We never cut the umbilical cord to the biosphere. Going through a bathroom, crying, sweating. And in the end, dying. This is impermanence on a very big scale. And if you really look, you know, you can't find, you can't find the boundaries. Where is it? At the skin, at the room, at the walls of the house, at the borders of the country, at the edges of the planet. Where is it? You can't really nail anything down. It's all in constant flux, like a river. But we can jump into that river instead of desperately and you know, try to hold on to the banks. We can jump in. And our bodies are made like 75% of water. And, you know, the first life forms, they were in water. And then, you know, started to move about in the water, developing all kinds of fins and ways to move. And then starting to pull themselves onto land and the fins became some kind of you know digits to move on the land and then starting to become fingers and you know climbing up trees and then using tools and here we are that's just another station, you know, in this last process.
So allowing that the perception of impermanence to wash away the clinging, wash away the craving, wash away the delusion. That we can ever, you know, be masters of any of this. We can only be masters of our own minds and hearts that we can learn. But we become masters of our minds and hearts by tuning in with the way things really are. Not by trying to control them and pin them down. That's only creative of suffering. paying attention to our experience and then seeing uh, reality is already doing it. We just need to pay attention. And through this paying attention, washing away the delusions, washing away the assumptions and starting to understand ever more, you know, that if we want to have more ease in our lives, we have to jump into the river rather than trying to stop the river. And I think that's that central insight into the first of the Viparasa, to really understand that this is what is beneficial here, not the opposite. So it's kind of counterintuitive until the mind is enough informed so it starts to adjust. And, you know, to be informed means to really experience something. So it enters our form, it enters our nervous system, is changed by the experience. And then responds. It's just a training. Like any other skill, it can be learned, but we need to put in the time. And there needs to be an interest. 
it's just like freeing the mind from constraints and from limitations. And then, you know, revealing the beauty of the process itself. And there's a sense of enrichment and uh, they're not feeling we are alone in this. Because we can uh, intuitively, you know, appreciate that we are much vaster than what we think. And that this process has an intelligence. we can align ourselves with that intelligence and the perception of impermanence is a, is a gateway into that and it's always open we just need to remember So I just, you know, leave you now for about 10 minutes to the meditation, being with the changingness of the breath or whatever other way of meditating you would like to practice.
and slowly we're coming back to the body. Just, you know, paying attention to how this body and his mind, they are just two rivers, constantly changing. And how much, you know, the way we are looking at something determines what we see. This is just such an important information to have. It really helps us to have a choice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.